Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 5th, 2017. This is episode 1977 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today. It's Wednesday. Wednesday is interview day. i got this awesome gal hanging on the line. Her name is Tiffany Vanderbee, and she's going to talk to us about raising meat rabbits and their little rabbit tree that they have called Vanderbee Farms, and a little bit more about her homestead and some other stuff like that. We'll have all of that for you in just a minute. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com to learn more. For years now, I've been telling you to eat what you store and store what you eat. But storing food is only half of food security. The other half is knowing what to do with it. Chef Keith Snow of Harvest Eating will teach you to store food and how to use that stored food in amazing, delicious recipes in his new online course called Food Storage Feast. It features dozens of exclusive recipe videos, all built around long-term storage food that will help you integrate food security into your everyday life. Go to harvesteating.com forward slash FSF to get a free sneak preview of the Food Storage Feast, especially for TSP listeners. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode to get some historical context into our day. The year is 1977, because the episode is 1977. Yeah, and Alex Shrugged has two for us today. They are Anita Bryant versus the Gay Crusaders, and Tokyo Rose is Free and an American Citizen. South Bob Ben has one for us, GMOs, oh dear. And uh, let's look at the bullet points where we pick one of those to read. We have notable births this year. Donald Trump Jr., son of President Trump. Ahmad Al-Nami, died 2001, age 24, one of the 9-11 hijackers on Flight 93. Todd Beamer led the passenger revolt with, let's roll. Uh, Elizabeth, Hassel, Elizabeth Hasselbeck, Beck, blah, blah. Elizabeth Hasselbeck, see I can do it, conservative panel member on The View and host of Fox and Friends. In music, Kanye West, Robin Thicke, and Fiona Apple. In movies, John Vanderbeek, uh, Liv Tyler, and in sports, Troy Evans and Tom Brady are born this year. Uh, the year in film, Star Wars comes out in 1977, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and will forever change what motion pictures are expected to do, in my opinion. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind with Richard Dreyfuss and Terry Garr. Um, 77 had a lot of movies that were like just something like you'd never seen before, including Not So Serious and Funny, Smokey and the Bandit, Burt Reynolds and Sally Fields break every law known to man this year, and The Goodbye Girl, Richard Dreyfuss again becomes the youngest actor to win Best Actor at the Academy Awards. Also, Black Sunday, Palestinian terrorists try to blow up Super Bowl X. It's Cowboys versus the Steelers, and it's not that bad a game, says Alex Rugg. And fun with Dick and Jane, with the aerospace industry collapsing, Dick and Jane look for another profession like armed robbery. Of course, this movie will be remade 20 years later-ish, uh, if I remember right. 
This year in TV, Roots, a TV miniseries loosely documenting the enslavement of an African family, its suffering and eventual rise in American society. Hello, LeVar Burton of Star Trek. As Alex Haley's personal history, it's hokum, but it will change American attitudes toward black people for the good. The KKK gets the boot from this time forward, says Alex Shrugged. And it's your TV soap, a parody of daytime dramas with Billy Crystal playing the first, one of the first gay characters on TV. I remember soap. I used to actually like that show. Also in comedy, Eight is Enough, Three's Company, and The Love Boat. Watched all of those. This year in music, Hotel California from the Eagles. I Feel Love from Donna Summer. How Deep Is Your Love from the Bee Gees. And You Light Up My Life by Debbie Boom. Uh, this year in video games, Atari opens Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Time Theater. And many years later, they will do something that will make dads that have to go to Chuck E. Cheese feel a little bit better about having to go to birthday parties at Chuck E. Cheese. They will include draft beer on the menu at Chuck E. Cheese and make it where you don't want to completely kill yourself surrounded by all these kids screaming and video games going and kids spending money that shouldn't be spent. Anyway, just a side note by me. Uh, Space Wars is released in video games, the first vector graphics game. That's the lines are well-defined rather, defined rather than pixelated blobs. And in home computers, this year we get the Commodore PET, the Apple II, And the TRS-80 from Radio Shack. They figured the TRS-80 would never sell, but phone lights melted down as 250,000 customers rushed to put down a $100 deposit on what would later become known, I remember calling it the Trash 80. In other news, New York City is blacked out for over 25 hours and looting ensues. Global cooling this year as snow falls in Miami, Florida on January 19th. And food stamps are here. The line starts on the left, says Alex Shrug. I am going to read Anita Bryant versus the Great Gay Crusaders. And you won't even realize until you hear why I chose it. And I won't even be using my own words. I won't even be using any any form of communication. I'm going to play a song for you. And that will be my my entire response to Anita Bryant here. And some of you, some of you already know what it's going to be. And most of you don't. So, Anita Bryant is a popular singer who belted out the Battle Hymn of the Republic at the halftime show for Super Bowl III. She is now doing commercials promoting Florida orange juice, and she's good at it. She's a 1950s stereotypical mom and a believing Christian. She also believes that the flamboyant gay rights movement is promoting a gay lifestyle to children. She speaks out against the flaunting of homosexuality. To be fair, she also objected when Jim Morrison of The Doors flaunted his manhood at a Florida concert. She thinks don't ask, don't tell solution is best, just like President Bill Clinton will order as commander-in-chief when dealing with gays in the military. But unlike Bill, Anita is getting hassled left and right by gay activists. She is even assaulted on TV when a fellow throws a pie in her face. FYI, years later, recalling the attack on Anita Bryant, two pies will be thrown at Ann Coulter they will miss. And then a gay man in the San Francisco is beaten and stabbed to death by local toughs. The mother of the gay man accuses Anita of contributing to her son's death. 200,000 protesters take to the streets. Anita's career is over, and so it goes even today. My take by Alex Shrugged. Warning, I'm going to use the real names for body parts. I use these same words in front of my children, and I always have, so brace yourself. Here we go. Okay, this is pretty pretty, uh, pretty not uh, vulgar to have that kind of warning, but whatever. As I understand it, the gay rights movement is divided between those who want to be peacefully gay and those who want to ride giant inflatable penises down Main Street. I am co-okay with the first group. I am not okay with the second, although I'm willing for inflatable penises to be displayed in a private setting. To be fair, I feel the same way when women protest President Trump by wearing vagina hats. I am not shocked. I am bored. 
Some inequalities exist between heterosexuals and homosexuals. We can fix those by eliminating special privileges granted to heterosexuals like marriage. Marriage like sex should be private. Contracts can be entered into by consulting adults. And if the signatories do not live up to the terms of contract, it can be abdicated like any other breach of contract. Beyond that, government should butt out. And while I agree, I cannot resist this opportunity given that the segment was on Anita Bryant to play the following for you. But I know that I'll get them. I know that they'll come through the people and places and call the woods rough. Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett never let a good opportunity to get some kind of lyric put down uh, go to waste. And uh, I actually was three years old in 1977. And it was actually the, the song you just heard, which is much longer than the small, last part of it that you heard, uh, was the first time I ever knew of Anita Bryant. And uh, I had to look up who the heck was this Anita Bryant chick to know why Jimmy Buffett had such a, uh, a willingness to kind of take a shot at her at the end of that song, Manana, there. Um, and basically, that song is basically, don't talk about shit if you don't know about it. That's the whole point of that song. It's a pretty cool song. I have a link in the show notes to the video, of, a video that a fan made uh, with it on YouTube where you can hear the whole song if you want to, if you never had But uh, just, I couldn't resist that as a, as a parrot head who's, who's loved Jimmy Buffett for almost 30 years. All right, folks, I want to remind you about the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade today. That's a great way that you can support the show and get a return of investment. We offer discounts to over 60 vendors. There's a lot of video content that you can't get anywhere else. We do video all of our workshops from this point going forward. There's hours of video on our workshops in there for MSB members only, and yes, you can download them. Every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced in convenient zip files, so you can start with episode one and binge out all the way up to episode 2000 and beyond very, very soon. That's all available, and it's all available for a cost that comes down to 18.3 episodes per day, $50 a year. And you can try the membership out for as little as $5 a month. If you have not yet become a member, please consider supporting the show as a Support Brigade member today. All right, and with that, uh, let's go ahead and get into the uh, main topic of our show. I'd like to, at this time, introduce our special guest, Tiffany Vanderby uh, from Vanderby Farms. And talk to us today about meat rabbits. With that, hey, Tiffany, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hi. Hey, I'm glad to have you on today. We got you on to talk about meat rabbits, which I think is a great subject and something we haven't really gone into very much here at the Survival Podcast. But before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are now? Like, Take us back to like high school and you're trying to figure out what to do with your life and what kind of path that do you walk down to end up with a, with a rabbit tree? Oh, goodness. Um, well, high school wasn't that long ago for me. I'm only 22, so... Um 
I mean, I, I thought, you know, I was going to go into broadcasting, and I, you know, I ended up going to community college, and then uh, I went away to university for a semester, and that just, that didn't work out. And so I came back home, and I uh, settled down, got married, and lo and behold, my husband wants to be a homesteader. He wants to be a prepper. And uh, I was in on it as long as we had uh, animals. Um, I'm all about that, and uh, I grew up canning food, so I knew a little bit about that. So uh, I had uh, some rabbits growing up, and I go to him, and I go, hey, you know, can we get some rabbits? He said, sure, as long as they're meat rabbits. <laughs> here we are. So so he, wa he wants to be a prepper to homesteader, but he wants his rabbits to be neat. Yep. Okay. Well, that's good, though, that you guys kind of are on the same page with that, because a lot of times, you know, in these things, it's one wants one thing and one wants something totally different. So um, when you when you get your rabbits, you know, how, how's your rabbitry set up? It's set up, um, our rabbits are in cages, and they are on racks, so they are too high. And um, we have a gravity-fed water, um, a nipple system. They've got a 55-gallon drum of water and then um, lines, uh, just, uh, you know, a plastic lines with nipples on the end going to each cage for the water. And then um, we just, we use the uh, typical J feeder to feed them. So. Very cool. And. How did you choose your rabbits? What was, you know, your criteria either for like when you're buying your initial rabbits and deciding which ones you're going to keep versus which ones you're going to cull as, as, as meat rabbits? When we first started out, um, I had had uh, Rex rabbits when I was younger, and they, of course, they feel like velvet, so I wanted those again to start off with. And then I read this book um, called Raising Rabbits the Modern Way by Bob Bennett. I read the first edition, which was um, written in the 70s. And uh, so it, was, it, it wasn't outdated, but it wasn't up to date, you know. Um, so I ended up picking up some New Zealand's, a pair of New Zealand's for our meat rabbit. And, um, and then we just kind of, um, they multiplied like rabbits. <laughs> And, um, you know, we go on Craigslist and we kind of look and see, you know, are there any good rabbits for sale near us? And um, what you what you want to see, what we like to see in a rabbit is that it's um, compact but heavy. So it's like a little meat brick. Um, and we, you know, we choose which ones grow the fastest to keep, which ones um, are lively and... Um, They're just very healthy-looking, shiny fur, shiny eyes. I mean, good personalities. We don't want biters. I mean, we have a three-strike pool, you know, <laughs> to get fit times. You're going to oven, so... I think people don't realize that that rabbits can actually be aggressive and can and can actually be dangerous uh, if if they're not handled mm -hmm. properly. Oh yeah, I've got I've got plenty of scars on my arms from being bit and scratched. So, I mean, it's not, they're not a docile animal always that everybody thinks they are. It sounds like your rule with rabbits is, is like when I, before I started doing ducks, I used to do uh, chickens. And I had the same kind of a rule with a rooster. If I got spurred in the calf, he goes in the crock pot. Yeah. 
yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so talk a little bit about how you choose your call and how you process and, and you know, how that all goes. Right now we're at a spot. We, we um, over the, this winter we had about 65 rabbits. We had uh, 20 brood and about 45 grow out. And now we're down to 10 with seven grow out. So all those grow outs are going to, they're going to get cold someday. And probably the end of June. Um, but those are chosen to be grow outs to get cold because um, we, we have a buyer right now. And we're in a good spot with our rabbit tree. But um, we call them by what's called cervical dislocation. Um which is basically you're, you're breaking their neck. Um, we use a, um, if you're familiar with something called the hopper popper, my husband built something similar. It's a V-shaped piece of metal that's attached to a wall, and you put the rabbit's neck in there and tug on its hind legs, and it breaks their neck. It's super easy. Um, I can do it. I'm not, I'm not very big or strong, and I can do it. I mean... And then um, you just you just start uh, dressing them out. And uh, I know it's like it's an audio show, right? So the visual is kind of important with things like skinning an animal or whatever. But I mean, could you talk about a little bit about how you do your processing and like how long does it take to process a single animal? Um, my husband can do you can process a rabbit in five to seven minutes. Me, it takes about ten to fifteen. Um, we how we do it is we hang them up by the back legs after their necks are broken and we slit their throat and um cut off their front legs and let them bleed out for a little bit. And then um you just do um we uh cut the fur around the hind legs and then we do a wide cut to the genitals and then uh down to the uh sternum. And uh and we pull the skin off like a wet sock after cutting off the head. And um, and then we open up the belly, careful not to cut the internal organs because that just that makes a mess. Um, we check the liver and kidneys for uh, disease, mostly uh, it's uh, called coccidiosis. I, I might pronounce it wrong. I've only ever read it. <laughs> um, but those uh, appear as white spots on the liver. Um, you can still eat the rabbit if it's got that, but you just don't want to eat the internal organs, and you want to make sure it's cooked all the way through. Um, and then you just you um, cut all the you know put all your organs in in your slot bucket, and uh, we quarter them up. And sometimes we can them, sometimes we freeze them, or we eat them fresh. So. Okay, and can you talk a little bit maybe about, you know, when you need more rabbits? Everybody says they breed like rabbits, but there is kind of a process for that and what that's like, how you ensure the survivability of the kits, things like that, how you set the, you know, the mom up with a, with a, you know, a place to, to raise them, et cetera, how you decide when it's time to breed them, all that stuff. We, um, we like to, we have our rabbits on a six week schedule right now, so, we just bred one yesterday, and so in six weeks, we will breed another one. Um, we pick, you know, we pick our dough, we pick our buck, and whichever 
two that we think are going to make good, lively kits that are going to grow fast. Like yesterday, we bred my husband's Flemish giant to his um, silver fox buck, and which they get hybrid vigor, so we know that they're going to they're going to be ready in eight weeks. Um, so we put our so we put importantly we put the dough in with the buck um, because if you put the buck in with the dough. Um, she is very territorial and she might try to kill your buck. So you put the dough in with the buck and then it literally takes maybe 30 seconds. And you, you watch them. I mean, you have to watch them to make sure that the buck, he will literally tense up and fall off of her. I hear some bucks are screamers, but we haven't run into that yet. But that doesn't mean it won't happen. Um, we like to get three good fall offs just to make sure that the dough is bred. And if um, either one of them are first timers, we like to put them back together about eight hours later to make sure that she um, she's taken. And then after that, I count, um, say, say I breed them on the first, I will give her a nest box on the 29th. And then you should have babies about the 31st. Um, we use metal nest box and um, we, um, you can pop out the bottom board that's in them. It's just a piece of wood um, that has uh, holes drilled into it. And uh, we like to do that with every every litter just to make sure everything is nice and clean. And then you put in, um, we put in about a whole flake of hay for her to make her nest with. And she, on, um, on day 28, 29, she will pull fur. And um, it's going to look like, you know, she got into a fight or an like a, a pillow exploded in her cage, but um, she will pull fur, and then you won't know she had babies until you look in and see her fur pile is moving. It'll look like it's breathing or something. And then um, I like to go in there as soon as I can after she's had her babies, after she's had the kits, and um, check them to make sure that they're all alive, remove any dead ones or um, runt failure to thrive and um, dispose of them. And they will um, they'll open their eyes after about 10 days, and after about three weeks, they will start hopping on the nest box and start sampling her food and uh, water. And But the important thing is you do not um, – she will not – it'll look like she abandoned her babies because she won't ever go in her nest box but they only nurse once or twice a day because rabbit's milk is so rich. So I guess the takeaway there is don't try to help. Yes, exactly. Don't don't go messing with the babies until it's time to, to grow them out. So what's kind of the timeline then to where they're, they're ready to be separated, where they're weaned? Some people do it at eight weeks. Some people do it at six weeks. We usually do it about six weeks, um, which is you see them, you know, they're always eating food. They're always eating. And that's at the point. That's what, when we separate mom from the kids. So. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, like, what's what's her, like you said, you have the rabbits on six-week breeding cycles, but I guess, it, you know, how many does do you have? Like, how long do you rest that doe before you, you know, breed her again? Depending on the doe, like if it's a first timer, they generally lose their first litter. 
So we will rebreed them right away. They, you know, minutes within an hour after having their their litter, you can rebreed them, and they will be, they will have another litter within a month. And um, but we have four does right now, so you know, every six weeks, you know, one one's being born, one's being called, and um, one's being weaned. So um, that gives them about a month, about six weeks, to have by themselves, you know, without being pregnant. I'm sorry, I missed that. How, how long did they did their in recovery there? About six weeks. Okay, so they get about one cycle break each. That's interesting. You said so that it's very common things. So I've never I've never raised rabbits. All the rabbits I've ever processed has been shot with a shotgun or a .22. Um, that it's very normal for the doe to lose her first, her first, uh, her first litter. So in that case, when it's her first litter, you always breed them right away. Is Generally, that... within a month, we will rebreed them, um, depending on how we how we are with cage space. Because um, that's that's always the thing: do we have enough cage space to go sure. on with um, the rabbit? Rabbit, rabbits. I'm sure you've heard of chicken math. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same with rabbits. Yeah. So. Yeah. But I mean, like, what I'm, I'm really keen in on there is what I heard you say, I think I heard you say was that it's very common for a doe or she, I think you said almost always will, will lose her first litter. They won't survive. Is that what you said? I, I would say it's about a 50 50 shot. We've had does that have, you know, kept all of her kits alive and healthy through the first litter, but there's been others that, you know, they, they just, their hormones haven't kicked in yet, Got you. and they don't know what, what happened. I think it's really important, though, because people that are starting out, if they don't know that, you know, and they, they, they breed a couple does and, and they lose both litters or even one litter, they, they're very likely to feel like they've done something wrong. So knowing that it's common for that first litter to not make it, I think is actually really important. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's um, before we got into rabbits. I mean, like I said, I read... Um, Racing Rabbits, The Modern Way by Bob Bennett, and then I did lots and lots of research, and I, I wanted to know what I what I was going to expect and what, you know, what to expect with rabbits and how to take care of them and how, you know, how long to do this and how much to feed them. So, I mean, it, it's a very important thing to know because no matter what you do, sometimes you're always, you're always going to lose them. I mean, sometimes. Yeah, no, I I absolutely get it. Um, so you got you mentioned you had a buyer. So you guys actually sell rabbits for a profit in addition to what you do for yourself, right? So how do you market your rabbits for sale? I wouldn't say that we um, that we make money on the rabbits. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, they 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 pretty much they pretty much pay for their feed sometimes, but um, we mostly market through Facebook and Craigslist. Um, we get we generally get return buyers for rabbit meat. Generally, um, we sell live rabbits, and people either grow them out even bigger and use them for breeding, or they will um, pull them themselves. So you guys don't process um, for your customers at all. We will if they request it. We charge. Um, an extra couple of dollars to do it and um you know we'll freeze them or bag them up or quarter them if they want 
But generally, most of our customers, you know, they're already in the rabbit game and they know what they want. So, um, they, they, you know, they'll process it however they want to do it. it. It seems to me like from what I've seen with rabbits that a lot of times you can sell some rabbits for a lot more, not maybe a lot more, but but more money uh, as to somebody who wants them as breeders than somebody who just sees them as, as freezer fodder. Yes, yes. We um, If we get, you know, a particularly large litter of um, kits, we will sell them at uh, six to eight weeks as um, uh, just, just to a coal buyer for $5 each. Um, now, somebody who wants, you know, a, a breeding rabbit, usually they will contact you and ask you if you have any breeding age rabbits, um, which we will generally sell depending on which they are between $15 and $25. Um, so there, there is a difference, but there's also more time and more feed and sure. you know, more grooming that goes into that. I got you. Okay, so, so I guess maybe it's not as common then for people to buy a rabbit for a breeder that they're going to have to wait, you know, another two months to breed. Yeah. They want, they want to, those are the people that want that kind of the instant startup type thing. I got you. That's kind of like we do when we were getting rid of our chickens. We kind of figured out that you could make a little bit of money raising chickens to, you know, until they were ready to start laying eggs as young pullets or at least get them closer than the chicks that people would get from tractor supply. But there was a trade-off on the feed debt issue then. But we were able to sell some of our laying, but like they were full-on laying that were young birds for like 20 bucks for a freaking chicken. And I'm like, I can never get 20 bucks for that chicken as a meat chicken because they're just not very, you know, the laying birds are just aren't very big birds. So it seems like there's kind of like some level of a corollary there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. there's. I, I believe there's a lot um, of correlation between uh, rabbits and chickens. I mean, we just got our first flock this spring, and um, I'm, I'm learning that they're um, very similar in, um, uh, well, first of all, I mean, I think they're similar in taste. But beyond that, um, they, they're they very, um, I'm not going to call them fragile animals, but they're very um, finicky, I suppose, yeah. in the way that they, um, they're susceptible to diseases and uh, broken legs and wings and such. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. And on the taste thing, uh, I imagine that you guys probably uh, eat quite a bit of rabbit. So, you got any uh, any suggestions for recipes, prep, things like that? Uh, one of our favorites is rabbit pot pie. Mm. Um, Please continue. I, <laughs> I um, make that. You can either use a nine by thirteen pan, or I've just started using a twelve inch deep cast iron pan, and I like that better because I um, I take a can of cream of mushroom soup, a can of cream of chicken, and then a can of milk, and you know I mix it all up and you know get it warmed up, and then um, an onion, and um, a can of peas and carrots and mixed vegetables, and then another can of corn, and um, some pre-cooked rabbit. Um, I generally take, like, if it's a frozen rabbit, I will put it in a slow cooker until it's um, done all the way through, and um, debone it, toss it in there with the um, other ingredients in the pan, and then I will just take a pre-made crust and spread it out across the top, poke some holes in it, Pop it in a 425 oven for 30 minutes, and voila, 
I mean, it's, it's simple, it's easy, and it's delicious. It sounds good. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of hungry yeah, now. I mean, I had breakfast a long time ago. And, hey, so that's probably your favorite. You got any others? Um, I like to make uh, rabbit salad, you know, just like chicken salad, but I use rabbit. Um, and I like to make it the night before because then I think it really takes on a, a better flavor. And I usually make that with canned rabbit. Um, so I take a a rabbit that we had we had canned and I debone it and then I I use miracle whip and then um some celery, grapes and dried cherries and I let that set overnight and then put it on a sandwich or a croissant or in a tortilla shell. I mean it's it's delicious any way you eat it. You're kinda of doing that like a West Coast style. I can't think of the Sonoma, like a Sonoma style uh chicken salad. Yeah, that's sure. they sell that mm-hmm. at Costco. That stuff's it's, it's like crack, man. It's, you, you can eat too much of it way too fast. <laughs> it took me a second to think of what that the, the word was for it, but I know that like we buy it for the workshops here a lot of times. Put it out for lunch because everybody likes it. They do it with grapes instead of dried cherries, but the dried cherries sound pretty damn good too. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I like the grill. I like the grill rabbit. That's one of my favorite. I'll do a, a overnight brine, uh, a basic brine, you know, uh, to the gallon. Uh, a quarter cup of salt, a quarter cup of sugar, and uh, that kind of tenderizes things. And then, like, kind of a hot and fast initial cook till you get, like, a a little bit of a sear on it. And then wrap it in foil and go indirect heat for about 30 minutes at a really low heat. And people think you're going to dry a, a thing out. But that I do that with squirrel and rabbit both. Again, I'm mostly a wild game guy when it comes to this stuff. Because I'll tell you, it's not actually easy to find somebody selling meat rabbits. And I, I think no, part yeah. of it's regulation Yep, if you um, sell over, I, I believe in Michigan where we are, it's, if you sell over a thousand rabbits a year, you have to get a license. Yeah. And there's kind of a point where if you're going to do it for money, you've got to scale to a certain level to make it worth doing. Um, you know, because once you're, if you're going to do, if you're going to do a, you know, 800 of them, it's a lot of work. And it's not that much more work probably to do like 1500 where it starts to actually, to be a valid enterprise, but now you've got the government sticking their face in it and and what have you. So I think your approach is actually really good. It's what a lot of homesteaders are doing. I'm going to sell enough to pay for what we're producing for ourselves. You know, if I can buy their feed, and then my my sweat equity is what I give in return for the the product that I get, which is better than anything I can buy. Then then that works out. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the way we figure it. I mean, we we do it as a labor of love almost. What is your success rate? Like when you breed a doe, I mean, is it like ninety percent of the time she's gonna she's gonna kit? Is it is it eighty five? Is it a you know what what is that? And and we'll just leave out like the the first timers. Like once that that doe has given you a litter in the past, what 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 are the odds that every time you breed her, she's gonna produce? Actually, I have a very accurate um, way of keeping track of that. That has only ever happened to us two times in the three years we've been raising rabbits. So only twice you've had a successful breeding but not a successful pregnancy. Correct. Oh, wow. That's that's pretty bang on, you know, guaranteed type of thing. Um, yeah. Because I've always got people telling me, you should raise rabbits. I'm like, yeah, that's what I need one more freaking thing to do. <laughs> I think we all have to kind of figure out what works best for us, but they they are a really great 
um, meat yield for the return, I've, I've heard something like um, a, a, a buck in three does can produce more meat a year than raising, you know, a, a, two goats or something like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you keep them on a very uh, strict, very um, high return schedule, like if you breed them, you know, as soon as they, um, you know, have kidded, have, have kindled, you can get, um, you know, as much meat as you can off of a calf, you mm. know, a small um, cow. Over the same period of time because they yeah. take a long time. What is what is your – I missed it or I heard it, but – Slip there a second. What is your grow out time like? Let's say from 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 when they're born to they're weaned. I think you said that's about six weeks or eight weeks. It's a, we we wean at six weeks. So six weeks. So uh, from that that point to where we've got fryers. What what kind of a, a time is there in that? We generally um, butcher our fryers. Depending on which breed, if we do the hybrids, it's eight weeks. Definitely, those are big. Oh fryers. wow, those are fryers. Pound fryers, and then um, the mixed breeds we get at about twelve to maybe sixteen weeks. Okay, so, gotcha. So if you're I mean, doing those 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 the, the hybrids you're talking about, you're only actually taking care of them independently for two weeks. Yeah. Wow, that's a pretty quick turnaround time. That's up there with yeah, quail, man. That's 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 pretty awesome. And quail, you got to take care of them when they're when they're being brooded. Where rabbits, mom does the the, the brooding, so to speak. Um, yeah. So when you do your grass, you just put them in different cages. Have you played around with any kind of tractoring or pasturing your your finishing time or anything like that? We played around with a little bit of tractoring last summer. Um, it, it took them longer to grow out like that. Um, but I mean, it's nice. You don't have as much feed you have to pay for. Um, it depending on how many you're tractoring, it can be a pain in the butt to have to move sure. them around all the time. Um, but we, um, I mean, it, it, it's simple. I think um, we um, we have four foot by three foot grow up cages. Um, that we put them in. If, if, I mean, if mom's overcrowded in her cage, if she has so many kits that she's overcrowded when they start hopping out of the nest box, we will move her to one of the grow up cages with her kits. Oh, okay. Uh, but after, after we wean them, depending on how many, um, rabbits we have in the grow up cages, we will organize them either by age or by sex. Um, because sometimes, you know, if you're waiting for, you know, to have, 10 or 20 grow outs to butcher at the same time. You don't want them to reach an age where they can breed uh, and, um, you know, before you butcher them. Sure. So. That makes sense. So, um, I lost my train of thought there. You had me another question and now you derailed me with that. <laughs> um, so how do you keep track? You were talking about your record keeping. Like, how do you know who's who? I mean, with birds, I use bands on them and it's pretty much in like, I'm not worried about individual birds. I'm not doing a lot of breeding um, intentionally. So, but you are. So, how do you make sure you know who's who? Because with as many rabbits as you keep, it's you know, giving everybody a name doesn't necessarily work. I would think. Everybody gets a tattoo. They we use a clamp style tattoo. There are two types. You have a pen style, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a pen that you write in your rabbit's ear with, um, or the clamp style, which is. Um, 
you put these letters in a clamp and um, it pokes holes in their ears and you put the ink in it. Um, and I think that's a lot easier than the pen style where you don't, you know, it's it's all of it right away rather than trying to hold down a squirmy rabbit and write inside of its ear clearly. Um, but I also keep a notebook where I write down everybody's name, their sex, their color, if they were adopted or born, what their breed is, um, when they've been bred, how many times they've been bred, you know, or if they've been called or, you know, their weight. I keep track of every litter's weight. Um, I mean, who we bought them from, how much we paid. I keep track of everything. Okay. Go ahead. We also also have um, uh, note cards that we keep on everybody's cage that's got, you know, their ear number, their their breed, their name, you know, if they've been bred or if they need a nest box on a day, et cetera. And how how like is, when you say everybody like this, if you're doing friars and and like these guys are earmarked, no pun intended to uh, to be called, do you bother with numbering or labeling those, or do you when you do you do that when you decide okay this is going to become a, a a flock rabbit I guess you'd say. I always um, catch you my rabbits because I. From about the age of four weeks, I start recording every individual rabbit's weight ah. to, you know, that, that combination of parents to see, you know, how good their litters are doing. Um, just, um, and if, you know, this combination of parents is yielding uh, kids that grow really slow, I will try a different, um, you know, combination of parents or... Um, eventually maybe call them if they're, you know, this combination is not creating uh, very good kits or um, if they're, uh, they once created very good kits, but now they're declining and, um, you know, that. That, that kind of leads me to what I was saying. My next question was about, like, how do we decide when a breeder it's like you're done. You've 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 done all you're going to do, and it's time for you to to graduate to uh, to Austin Pfeffer University. And I guess a decline in in birth rate or a decline in grow out or or what have you is that, or is there like a kind of a point where like at a certain age, like okay, even if it's not gone down yet, it's it's time to just bring in new blood, so to speak. We actually have a pair like that right now, um, and we have a friend who's building a colony and. You know, he's, he's looking for a couple extra rabbits. She's still, the pair is still creating um, nice rabbits. She's, uh, the doe is just only having, you know, two or three instead of six ah, or seven. Gotcha. So that's that's the way we kind of decide. Um, and, and, and we like these. This is um, one of the first pairs we started off with. So they're getting more of a gentle um, <laughs> relief rather than... Um, getting butchered and put in the crack pot. I got you. I understand. When I had I had my rooster, I named Upgrade. When I got rid of my chickens, I made sure he got a good home because he was my first rooster that we had here. And it's it's a weird thing because you'll process, you know, 50 animals in a day, and then you'll have this one, you'll be like, well, you know, we're going to put him in a retirement home. But I, I guess that, like, somebody that's just starting up their rabbitry and is looking to build up some stock, being able to get kind of a, a pair of breeders that will breed, they're just not going to produce as many, 
it might actually be a good thing because I think one of the things that we as homesteaders tend to do when we take something on new, rabbits, quail, ducks, whatever, we go a little too fast and having less to take care of lets us perfect our methodology. And you know, those are good, there's good genetics in there. She's just kind of on the downhill run with her productivity. So that's a chance for those genetics to be captured by someone who's in a startup phase versus somebody that's in a production phase like you are. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. I think um, that's, that's um, something that you want to look for if you're starting out. I mean, having an experienced doe um, is probably one of the best things that you can get um, if, you know, starting out. Um, and, I mean, she uh, she lifts every time. I mean, it's not... You know, some rabbits are moody and they won't lift on certain days or if they don't feel like it. But, you know, she lifts every time you put her in the cage with a book. Gotcha. So, I mean, that it, it really um, makes things less complicated if you're starting out. So what is your target for the weight of a rabbit at processing? Like, how, I know it probably varies by breed, but like most of the time, what are you looking for that animal to weigh? And then what is the, the spread between the live weight and the dressed weight on, on a rabbit that's, you know, the, the target size and weight? We, um, if you want a fryer, we butcher at five pounds live weight. If you want like a, a stewer, we will butcher at anywhere between 7 and 10 pounds. Gotcha. Um, the fryers, uh, depending on which breed, will dress out to between 1.5 and, and 3 pounds, and the stewers will generally um, dress out to about 5 pounds. So, I mean, it is more economical for us to do the fryers. Sure. I mean, weight-wise, feed-wise, every-wise. You get less, but you got a hell of a lot less time, energy, money into the product at that point. Um, you kind of mentioned stewards there. So kind of my other question was like, when you have an old breeder and it's not the special one that's going to get a nice send off to uh, to the next ravagery, and we're calling breeders, like what is you know we were talking about mature rabbits, two, three, four years old. How big are they, and and do they are they getting earmarked for things like stewing and canning because they're probably nowhere near as tender as these young bunnies. Oh yeah, they can. Oh, I we had a buck. He was too big for um, our hopper popper, um, <laughs> and he we we had to shoot him in the head with a twenty two. And then I tried. It took me twenty minutes to skin him because he was so old and tough. I put him in the crock pot for eight hours, <laughs> and that I mean it, it helped, but still he was tough. Um, but yeah, we, um, we generally, uh, try to freeze them or, or brine them and freeze them or, you know, stick them in the crock pot on low all day. It's a, generally they sound like a good candidate for canning too, because you're going to, you know, you're going to cook the heck out of them when you do that. Oh, definitely. Um, we quarter ours, um, fryers, stewers, you know, whatever. We quarter ours and then put them in quart-sized canning jars and pressure can them for 90 minutes at 10 pounds. Okay. Yeah, that'll oh. do it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That'll tenderize the toughest rabbit. Because it, 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 it is amazing, like, just from, you know, all the ones I've processed from shooting them. You shoot a young one, and you can you can freaking skin it without a knife, really. You can grab the back skin yeah. and just yank, and it'll come out. You shoot an old rabbit, even like a small rabbit, like a cottontail, and that rabbit's a few years old. 
it's like skinning a squirrel. I mean, it's it, it's a it's a totally different world, um, mm -hmm. one to the next. So, um, how often would you say you guys you know include rabbit in your diet? Is it like weekly, a couple times a week? I mean, um, lately it's been about once every other week. Um, over the winter, it was maybe about once a week, but we try to eat it fairly often because we do have such an abundance of it. Yeah. As you sell, like, here's what I've noticed. Like, I don't get to eat duck eggs very much anymore because the customer comes before the farmer. <laughs> so there's like, you must eat duck eggs every day. Well, um, no. Especially during, like, there's cycles. I'm sure you guys have cycles with breeding and all. But with, you know, birds, as you'll learn, you got into chickens, like, they'll go through a molt or they'll go through, they'll lay less during shorter day periods and all. And when we're in those shorter periods, I don't get any. You know, I might get lucky and get a cracked one or two if the dogs don't get them first. But uh, there's there's times where they ebb and flow out for the farmer. Um, so, it, it, are you guys kind of happy with where you're at? Do you plan on going you know, any higher level of production than you are right now to make it more of a micro enterprise, or is like is it kind of like just where you want it to be now? more at where I want to be right now. Um, I mean, like I said, over the winter we had like 65 rabbits and that was that was too much. I mean, that's, they're, I mean, they're little animals, but they poop a lot. And, <laughs> you know, that's a lot that you have to, you know, shovel out of there. Yeah. So. Fertility yield, though. I mean, I, I remember one person I talked to that had rabbits and they were, you know, they had like, I think, a buck and three does. And they were doing it mostly just for their own production. And I remember she told me, if I didn't breed them, I would have a small group of them for the manure alone. Because oh, yeah. you can use it. It's a cold manure. It's not like chicken manure where it has to be composted or whatever. It can go straight into the garden. And I don't know, those chickens you got now, you start thinking some function stacking there because chickens will help kind of process that a bit. But, yeah, 65, that's a freaking lot of rabbits, man. That's... That's time. So when you get rabbits like that and you're doing your culling, do you always process a large amount or do you get into the point where like, you know what, we got 65 of them that have no storage requirements whatsoever. They're just being fed. And when we're going to have rabbits Saturday, we'll just go out Saturday morning, pick one and, and into the, into the fryer he goes that day. Um, uh, what we did with the 65 of them, we sold a lot of them, um, to the coal buyers. Okay. Um, but we, I mean, we will go out there and we will butcher a whole litter at one time. Okay. You know, between seven and nine of them. And then we will either freeze them or can them that day. So you're not about like the one-off just for today type of thing? Not, not unless it's, hit, it's, three, it's three straight. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, you see, you're more generous than me. When I had the roosters, it wasn't a three-strike rule. It was spermie and the calf hang from the oak tree five minutes later. There was, it was once and done with that. And I had this one little one that I think so, I, I didn't buy him. I think somebody threw him over the fence. It was like a bantam uh, blue cochran. And one day I'm watching all my chickens come in from the field, and there's this, it almost looks like something's wrong with its feet because they have those feather feet. And this little blue chicken like follows my chickens in and comes in and starts eating feed and stuff. And it was so young, I didn't know if it was a baby, if it was a bantam, you know, what was going on. And I, I thought it was a hen, and he was pretty cool. Like, I, you could pet him, and he would, like, just sit there and let you pet him and stuff like that. So I'm like, I'll keep him. He's like a little pet chicken, you know. And I, I wasn't sure, again, if it was a rooster or a, a pullet. And 
as he got older, he was a rooster. He would spur the hell out of me and bite me. And I think the little jerk knew he was so small I wouldn't process him. And eventually I suckered somebody into taking him into their flock. Um, but he's like the only bird that ever spurred me and didn't hang from the oak tree pretty fast. <laughs> so uh, is is like you're going to be you're do you said yeah you're moving into chickens. Are there other things that you're starting to do on your homestead? Um, we have goats um, that we're going to breed for the first time this fall. So hopefully we're going to get you know some kids and goat milk next year. And uh, we we have chickens. We've got some turkeys in the incubator. Um, we've got we've got a dog. I mean, I'm tr- I'm pushing for a pig, but <laughs> my husband he's not exactly keen on that yet. But. Yeah. On these turkeys, like, so do you have do you have birds that laid and you're 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 hatching your own poults that way, or did you get eggs from somebody, or or what's going on there? No, um, my aunt has she's she's the chicken lady. Okay. And um, her next door neighbor's uh, the goat lady that we got our goats from, and she also has turkeys. So I mean, we just we get our eggs from them to okay. incubate. Yeah, they're they're fun. They're dumb as a post for the first couple of weeks, but they're they're interesting birds. What what breed are those? Do you have any idea? Oh, they're they're a hind fifty seven. Okay. <laughs> they they think some wild turkeys might have got in there with their with their domesticated turkeys too, so we're not exactly sure. I did broad-breasted bronze last year, which are like they look like a wild turkey, but they're like the commercial. They're equivalent to like a Cornish cross chicken. Our biggest bird dressed out, dressed out at 40 pounds. Wow. And our smallest one was a hen, and she was like 26. They're they're amazing. But you can't, they have to be artificially inseminated because they're so big they can't breed. Uh, So you can't can't produce them yourself. We're kicking around whether to do them again or not this year. Because what I did last year is I decided... I would just, like, the price break on Pulse was huge if you got, like, 15. Like, it was, like, they were, like, 13 bucks a piece, and if you got 15, they went down to, like, 6. So I'm, like, I can raise 15 turkeys just as easy as I can raise, you know, 4 or 5 for us. So what I did to sell them is I have a processor here, but they're not a licensed processor for resale. So you buy the turkey, you take it down and get it processed, and you pay me $3 a pound. But I don't do any work. And that worked out pretty good, except we learned that even those big turkeys need their wings clipped because we had a few that went over our fence, and once they go over the fence, they're coyote fodder. So we're kicking around whether to do that again or not this year. But, like, you got all this stuff going on, but it seems like you did the rabbits, you nailed that down, then you added, you know, your chickens or your goats, and you're kind of nailing things down before you add more to where you've got a process, it works, you know what you're doing. Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe how important that is? Because I see people all the time, they get a homestead and they're like, I'm going to get chickens and I'm going to get goats and I'm going to get a cow and I'm going to get a pig and I'm going to get bees. And I'm gonna... and, and like they try to do it all in the first year and it seems like they always end up having a really bad experience. Yeah, I would be like those people. But my husband, he's much more level-headed and he's like, let's, let's figure out, you know, how much we can, you know, sustainably raise and on the land that we want to keep them on and you know, how long it's going to take for them to grow and, you know, how we can butcher them and what kind of meals we can make with them before we move on to anything else. Yep. Yeah. I think that's really important because yeah. that's, I, I understand it too. Cause when you finally get your place, like 
you dreamed about it and you, you listen to the podcast and you watch YouTube videos and everybody makes it look so easy. And I think eventually it, it all does kind of get easy, but each one of like, so when you say I'm going to raise rabbits, people would look at that and go, well, that's a skill set. No, no, there's, there's so many parts of husbandry, like all the stuff we talked about today, there's individual skill sets along the way. So setting up a rabbitry properly, that's a skill set. How, you know, feeding them and coming up with a time and that's a skill set. The breeding and understanding things like, do you think you're helping, but you're not? When you don't think she's feeding them, she's taking care of them or she's not going to. Just leave it alone. Don't touch it. So there's even a little minor skill set there. You know, processing, that's a skill set. If you're going to sell marketing, that's a skill set. So within each of these things in our head is one thing. There's all these individual skill sets. And if we knock that out and we get it to where, you know, we run it for a year or two and we say, we can now run X amount of rabbits every year this way. We know we can sell this many. This is how we're going to pay for the food. And then we say, okay, now we want to do a flock of chickens. Well, now we can start the whole process over, but now the rabbits are almost, you know, they're on like the schedule and we know what we're doing and our lives just are better that way. And I always try to bring that out when people come on and talk about any of these things because I've seen so many people fall for the trap. I even did a little bit myself. I didn't get too out of hand, but, you know, I had chickens and ducks at the same time while I was figuring out systems for both. And I learned from that that unless you really nail down what you want to do, they're not compatible with each other. They just aren't. They can cohabitate, but what they do to the land is so different, you know? Yeah. So um, you guys have a website or just a Facebook page or what have you? We have a, we have a Facebook page. Um, it's just facebook.com slash Farms. Um, and we're, I mean, we try to post at least a couple of times a week. We're working on a YouTube series right now with the rabbits, and hopefully that will expand to the rest of the farm. Um, but, yeah, we are um, we try to be really reachable, so if, if anybody wants to contact us or, you know, ask more questions, I mean, feel free. Okay, well, um, I mean, what we can have people do is if you have questions for Tiffany, you can just put them in the, show, uh, the, the comments for today's show. Uh, which I believe is 1977. Let me check on that before I lie. 1977. And uh, I'll make sure that there's a link to their Facebook page as well in the show notes. And that way people can reach out to you and follow along with uh, your adventures in homesteading. All right. And with that, I'd like to thank you for being with us today, Tiffany. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Okay, great interview. I really enjoyed that. I love talking to people that are just out there doing things on the homestead. Not everybody has to be you know, a certified master expert or, or whatever, or uh, be running a full-on business to be on this show, please let that kind of inspire you. If you have something interesting that you'd like to talk about on this show and you'd like to share with us um, and you think the audience would have an interest in it, just get over to survivalpodcast.com, click on the guests at the top. There's a form there. You can fill that out. Please fill it out completely. If you don't fill it out completely, you will not be hearing from us, and we'd love to have you on the air to talk about whatever it is you think the audience might enjoy. Anyway, um, before, ever, I'm sorry, at this point, I'd like to remind you that you can help support this show and the work that we do, bringing you content like this, by doing your Amazon shopping. Whenever you're going to shop at Amazon, go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. It'll redirect you to a page on the Survival Podcast website where you can see my Amazon reviews, or you can click a link just to go straight to Amazon and see their deals of the day. And from that point, whatever you buy on Amazon, once you click on one of our links, we get a credit for as an affiliate. So anytime you click on an Amazon link on our website, we get credit for it no matter what you buy. So it's an easy, painless way to help support the Survival Podcast. 
And I also have an item of the day for review for you every single day. And today I have uh, what we call an encore item. In, in other words, it's actually been featured on the site before. Uh, I have this one being refeatured because, well, I think it's important that you have it in your vehicle kit. It's the Victor Tire Plug Repair Kit. It's a really great tool. For those of you that don't know what a, what a plug kit for a tire is, it's something that if you go to a tire shop and say, I just have a nail in my tire, I need a plug, they'll say, that's not safe. We don't do that. You need a new tire. And they're all full of shit. How do I know? I know because my father ran a used tire shop for about 15 years, and I grew up spending weekends down at the tire shop, but I was busting down tires and mountain tires and balancing tires and plugging tires and patching tires when I was nine years old. That's how I know. That's how I know. And um, I'm telling you, these things can really be an actual lifesaver. In the write-up, I talk about the fact that, uh, you know, probably, I guess, eight years ago now, maybe nine years ago now, I was on my way home from uh, my office up in Frisco down to Mansfield. I was on the tollway. And uh, the car thermometer said 114 degrees. And right as I was getting to the toll gate, I hit a piece of angle iron. And that was the kind of damage that a plug kit won't fix. I spent about 15 minutes with cars flying by me you know, at high rates of speed, you know, with the tire down to the rim, so I really couldn't drive anywhere. There was no way to get off, so I went over to the side. I had to find, like, some stuff in the trunk to put under the jack so the jack didn't sink into the blacktop. That's how hot it was. And it took me about 15 minutes to change the tire. If it had been a nail or something that could be plugged, um, I would have been able to yank it out, stick the plug in, trim the plug off, take the air compressor out of my thing, plug it in, even air it up just enough to get it off the rim, limp on down to the next section safely, it would have been two minutes versus 15. That's 13 less minutes to risk getting killed. Plugging a tire is easy. It's one of those things. When I did a show recently where I said the 20 skills every 14-year-old should be able to do, and I left the automotive stuff out of it, when you move into like the 14 to 16 when you're learning to you know, be responsible for a car, plugging a freaking tire, using a freaking air compressor, and checking tire pressure, those would go on the list. It's easy. It's simple. There's plenty of YouTube videos of how to do it. And this stuff really works. I wanted to relay a little fun story, though. Okay, So that said, if you don't have plug kits in your vehicle and an air compressor, you should. And leave it there. Let me tell you a funny story, though. So I'm there, and I'm in, like, you know, really nice dress office clothes. You know, and so you're wearing a dress shirt. It's, like, 110, 112 degrees out. So you're just sweating through your shirt. And, you're, you know, you're, you're trying to be careful. And I start noticing, because of the way the sun's angled, a shadow approached me. Somebody's walking up behind me. I got a tire iron, and I got a gun. But I'm not going to go to the gun just yet, but I'm ready to temple shot somebody with a tire iron, because what the hell are you doing walking up on me changing my tire? But then maybe you're there to be helpful. I turn around, it's a rather young guy, and he doesn't look very threatening. He's got his vehicle pulled over behind me a little bit. He's got his four-ways on. And I'm thinking maybe he's going to say, do you need some help? By now, I'm almost done, so I really don't need any help. But maybe that would be nice. This guy, this freaking guy stops on the tollway, while I'm changing a tire, sweating through my dress clothes, and says to me, Hey man, um, I got on the tollway without realizing it, and I need 50 cents. Can you loan me 50 cents? I don't have any money on me. My initial response in my head was, F you, you effing idiot, right? But I thought to myself, do you know how much cojones it takes to pull over and asking a guy changing a tire, uh, you know, uh, a quarter mile from the, 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 the gate, can I get 50 cents to get through the gate? 
I actually laughed. I said, yeah, man, yeah. And I threw all the stuff in the trunk. I let the car down off the jack. And he's looking at me like, well, you're going to get it? Like, well, did you think I was going to stop? But I was, so I went and got in the car, got in the console, pulled out two quarters and handed it to him. And I didn't tell him the toll was 75 cents. <laughs> I let him figure that out for himself. Uh, but he asked for 50 cents. I gave him 50 cents. And, uh, you know, it's not that big of a crime to run a toll booth. He probably got there through the 50 cents in and, and, and through. I don't know. But I got home that day. I just thought I'd tell you that story. But, yeah, you can help us all the time by doing any of your Amazon shopping, no matter what you're going to buy. Just go to tspaz.com first, tspaz.com first, and If you don't have a plug kit and a portable compressor in your vehicles, I seldom tell people this, but you're wrong. It can save your life. It can save your ass. Okay, I'm going to throw out something here at the end of today's show. I'll put out an official post on this. But um, I have come up with a really cool idea for a show. And uh, like plug kit made me realize I'd forgotten to put this in the intro segment today. My buddy David just recently broke down in the middle of BFE. And if you don't know what that is, it's BF Egypt, right? Bum F Egypt. Uh, that's just any random place. And I'm not going to tell you how because we're going to save it for the um, for the show. But he had a dead battery and no way to jump it because no one else was around. But he managed to charge his battery. I'm not going to tell you how unless you saw it on Facebook and you know who David is. I have a, a story I've re re uh, talked about before uh, where we had a throttle cable break. But I'm not going to tell you I fixed it today. I'm going to tell you on this future show. What I want is listener content for this show. I want your stories of how you had a vehicle broken down or some kind of major maintenance issue, and you were stranded or stuck somewhere, and you used creative, ingenious, redneck ear engineering ways to get home. What did you do when you didn't have the proper part? What did, how did you get that car that was stuck in the ditch when you didn't have a winch out of the ditch? Or how you helped someone else do that? You know, going all the way back to the days of when we had fuses that were... You know, the round fuses and a fuse would blow and people would take the foil out of a cigarette uh, packet, wrap it around the fuse and pop it in there. And that's not really a good idea, but it would get you where you needed to go at least till you could get a proper fuse. That type of thinking. If you have a story like that, put TSPC vehicle in the subject line and tell me your story. And I will feature it on a future show. Uh, I don't want to do it like one off. I want to get like a bunch of these in. And then I want to do a whole show where I just go through and talk about all the different ways people have unstranded a vehicle. And you can include things like a tractor or something like that as well. I think this could be invaluable because people generally are not able to look up and see the tools and resources that are around them. And there's almost always some way that you can, you know, you can fix the problem or at least make it better or temporarily correct it long enough to get to somewhere safer or better. So if you have a story like that, TSPC vehicle in the subject line, send it to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com and help me create what I think will be one of the most helpful shows that we've ever put out on the Survival Podcast. With that, we're getting to the song of the day now, the, 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 the closing song, and one from the year that is the episode 1977. This is actually one of my favorite songs of all times. It's by the band Kansas. And it's called Dust in the Wind. I'm on Song Facts. I want to read a little bit to you about um, the song Dust in the Wind. Kansas guitarist Kevy Carrie Livgren, God, I can't read today, wrote this after reading a book of Native American poetry. The line that caught his attention was, For all we are is dust in the wind. This got him thinking about the true value of material things 
and the meaning of success. The band was doing well and making money, but Kerry realized that in the end, he would eventually die just like everyone else. No matter our possessions or accomplishments, we all end up back in the ground. Kerry wrote this song when he was under pressure to write follow-ups to the group's hit, write a follow-up to the group's hit, Carry On My Wayward Son. While playing his acoustic guitar exercises, his wife suggested putting lyrics to the patterns that would yield his hit song. I didn't think it was a Kansas-type song, he said. She said, give it a try anyway. Several million records later, I guess she was right. Kansas was almost done writing and rehearsing the Point of No Return album when their producer, Jeff Gilksman, asked if they had any more songs. Livgren reluctantly played this song for his bandmates on acoustic guitar, insisting they wouldn't like it because it was not Kansas. To his surprise, they loved the song and insisted that he insisted that they insisted he record we insisted they record it. Wow, what's wrong with me today? Livgren fought against his own song, but was overruled. Dust in the Wind became their biggest hit, but um, but Carrie never did think very highly of it. Quote, I tend to like more bombastic things like The Wall, he told us. Okay, so I think there's two lessons in this song. One is the song itself. You know? I, and the line in it that that actually, that whole story makes me think of is, and not another moment will all your money buy. And this actually changes my view of that song. I always saw that song somewhat preachy, like coming, not in a bad way, because I lo always love the song, but coming from like this, you know, this, this rock band talking to the rich people. But, but Carrie, the author of the song, was actually talking about himself. It wasn't really like something that you should understand. It's like, this is what I understand. Because if you think of like where Kansas was at this point, they were mega stars by now. Carry On My Wayward Son is one of the most iconic rock songs of all time. And it was very successful. And they were very successful. And they had plenty of money. And he had come to this understanding himself that all of this wealth, all of this money is not going to change who I really am in the world. That's up to me. And in the end, we all end up worm food. So you have to make the most of what you have. So there's that. But also his self-doubt about this song. I think there's two lessons there, too. It's a double-edged sword. There's times where you think what you have is not worthy. It won't work. And it's always worth taking the shot. It really is. Because you're your own worst critic. On the other side of that, that other blade of that sword, or that other edge of that blade, is that sometimes you think you have something that everybody's going to love, and nobody's really interested. And that means when we're walking through this life, and we know that we will end up as dust in the end, That we need to take every shot we have at things. Because we don't know which one's going to hit a home run and which one's going to strike out. But we do know that if we don't take the shot, we're never going to get the hit. We have, we can't, we got to go down swinging all the time. Because unlike baseball in life, you can keep swinging right up till the end. You're never thrown off the plate. You've got every chance in the world. If you can fog a mirror, your job here on earth isn't done. It won't be done until you yourself become dust in the wind. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.